Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Guys, it's uh, uh for you, it's it's been one week since you heard us talk. For me and David, it's been like a fucking month since we've been yeah. in the, the pod closet. Uh, for me, I've been sitting sadly in my my lonesome little self with my family doing family things, and Nathan has traveled far and wide. <laughs> far and wide. I've, he's been to like Seattle and Chicago, and I'm pretty sure Chernobyl. Uh, well, that was a that was definitely a weird detour. We weren't, to, we weren't supposed to. Talk. No moon. one expects you to go to Chimchaka. They never expect Chimchaka. That's yeah. how you. That's how you sneak in and risk every time. Uh, but hey, uh, if this is your your first time here, because we are starting a new book, this is the first uh, first of our episodes on imperialism. Uh, this is Mark's Madness. This is uh, the the podcast where where we two guys. My name's Nathan. Hi. My name's David. We both both he him pronouns for everybody here. Uh, and and we sit in a, a closet and we read books. Uh, most of those books tend to have a common theme in that they're all found foundational works of Marxism. Um, but but so far we have done, if, you, if this is your first one, go back because capital is there. And uh, I listen to the listener. I see the listener numbers. Y'all, y'all are skipping capital. And I, I know it's scary, but y'all need to go listen to capital. But uh, also State and Rev, which we just finished, was a delight. So jump in there too. And this one is going to be much in that same vein because it is another round of Lenin. Yes, yes. And Lenin, Lenin's good foot. Now this is uh, chronologically for the ideas that we're moving because essentially I've kind of realized this on the way. We're... <laughs> We, we didn't plan any of this. We didn't plan any of this. None but all of, of a sudden, we're on this long arch for Kwame Nkrumah's neocolonialism. And, uh, uh, Mao's in there, too. Don't yeah, worry. Mao's, Mao's in there, too. Mao might move. Uh, we don't we, know how this we, is going to work. We've got to shoehorn in Foundations of Leninism uh, by Stalin. we we, we got to get some stuff in there. But um, for now, I mean, that seems to be the arch. And in that chronological order, this comes after State and Rev. It's, it's moving progressively closer to that. In reality, real lifetime, Lennon wrote this before State and Rev. It was his last work before it. It was a year before it, maybe two years before it. Um, and Lennon was writing this. And a big part of a lot of Lennon's theory and a big part of the entire Russian Revolution was that it happened during World War One. It did. It did indeed. And that means, for those of you who are familiar with our format, but Nathan's tour of a weird part of history. Strap into the Wayback Machine, Mr. Peabody and Sherman style. We're going to learn about World War One. Um, now, here's the thing. Uh, Archduke got shot. We had a war. All right. We're done. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> Spent two weeks. That's all I got. That's and it. there is seventh grade. That's history World War One. Yes. Um, uh, so, so when we sat down and we're like, well, imperialism is kind of being written in, in re- you know, response to the things that Lenin saw in World War One. And me and my hubris said, oh, well, I'll just kind of, you know, I've, I know kind of what happened in World War One. I'll just get a, a real quick, brief, easy overview of what was going on. And oh dear, sweet Christ! If there is a less straightforward event in the history of human. Kind, I don't know what it is because God damn it, World War One is uh, is a nightmare uh, for all sorts of reasons. But specifically for Nathan's reason, it, it trying to nail down a concise uh, here are the causes and here's what happened is not exactly easy. So this is going to be my damned best. And if somebody wants to correct us, please do. I'm more than happy to do the corrections next week. We have no corrections this week, by the way. No one has corrected us lately. Oh yeah. Um, so that's, very gentle. That's, to us. That's, yeah, no, so, so far we haven't screwed up State and Rev that bad. Yeah. But this is Nathan Talks About History, so I will absolutely screw it up. Also, I'll be talking about the Slavs a lot. 
which means I will definitely fuck some stuff up at some point. Um, be, because I'm a, I'm a, you know, Western European white man trying to talk about the Balkans. That just never ends well. So, World War One. We have uh, a, a couple things going on, and there are there are a lot of a lot of different ways that you can try and isolate that. Maine seems to be the the, the theory that I I grabbed onto the most. Um, where was it? Uh, da, 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 there it is. Um, there is this concept of of what were the causes of World War One, and it's an acronym M A I N because we all love simple things to recognize. Um, and the M A I N there is militarism alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. And all of those kind of tie hand in hand, and they tie especially hand in hand with what we're dealing with, with this work also happened to be titled imperialism. Yes. I'm also going to be super rude and interrupt Nathan early. Because oh, God, do it. Quite what he has in store. Uh, but I want to say something at, it feels like right now in the flow of things. We've got to understand the machinations of what we're going into to just getting into the setup stage. So... People are pretty familiar uh, with the fact that there were three major colonial powers, okay? I mean, Portugal was nothing to sneeze at, but it was pretty well Spain, France, and England. Okay? Nobody ignore the fact that I'm opening gummy worms on the podcast. Yeah. Just everyone everyone pretend that's not happening. <laughs> Spain, France, and England, okay? Um, uh, don't, I mean, don't, not, I mean, don't write off Germany. Germany, uh, I was about to say, especially right now, Germany but, is a far bigger issue than Spain in but terms that's, of their imperialism. That's what I was going to say, is the stage of Spain and Britain being the ultimate colonial powers was dying a little bit because a lot of their Western colonies were breaking away. Okay, so we're, we're going way back in the way back machine now. Yes. Yeah. That is factually accurate. Yes. yes. So now we're kind of to where the superpowers in Europe, it, Britain is still nothing to sneeze at. Russia's climbing up there. But Germany has just unified um, under Otto von Bismarck. Fuck Bismarck. Fuck Bismarck. Uh, it turned into a serious regional power. Um, France is still a major, major colonial power. Uh, but they have had their asses kicked by Germany for a long time. Yeah, that whole Franco-Prussian War thing kind of put their asses uh, in their place. If you want to learn more about that, go back to our 1848 series. Yeah, so there's never a good enough Venn diagram hell to understand European alliances. But if you want to simplify it in your head as much as possible, okay, think that Britain is just this big naval power waiting to happen that used to hate everyone but now has reasons for concern. Russia is this, you know up-and-coming empire, and the central theme is going to be France and Germany. And that's going to make a lot of sense when you understand the banks and stuff behind that, too. Okay, yeah, so okay, so that that is that is definitely okay. There we go. Understanding the banking part of it, yes. Um, so, back to the fun World War One machine. Speaking of Russia, uh, this was an interesting thing that I didn't really think... I always imagined Russia... At this time, we, I know that when we talked about the time of the revolution... Something like seventy-five percent peasant, um, peasant, you know, subsistence farmer. At yeah. this point, it was the fourth largest economy in the world, mm-hmm. which is crazy. I mean, you're talking Russia, England, you know, Britain, Germany, France, Russia, like right up in the, those. You know, that's that's your talk. Um, at this point, it was eighty-five percent peasant, mm-hmm. so even higher. I mean, you're talking a super huge gap. Um, 
in, in, in lacking industrialization and things like that. And that's really amazing because industrialization came in pretty hard after the 1905 revolution. Yes, they definitely started pushing forward after after the, the first the first of our fun revolutions. Um, and so what this all boiled down to um, was a, a so, so we'll start with uh, we'll start with again we'll start with the end the militarism. There was there had been a, before World War One there was this forty year gap. In, in wars in Europe. There had not been a major war on the European continent in any way for 40 years. And back then, 40 years of the major powers not trying to kill each other was, like, creepy. Like, people were getting worried. Um, and during that time, you just build up, build up, build up, build up, build up. Without a major war to, to, to wipe out and reset the button, all you're doing is accumulating. And getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more ambitious and more ambitious. And Bismarck is unifying and unifying. Um, and, and so we have this we have this, ten- this kind of Cold War-esque tension between a lot of the major powers. The, the big two um, that the militarism side of it came down to was, was Germany and Britain. Britain always and forever is known for its navy. It is the one thing it does. It is the one thing it does amazingly. Um, and it is its one claim to to. It's the one thing that keeps it alive. Without an without a strong navy, England would have fallen a number of times. It just it it, it has to have that. Um, now Germany, the the fun fun pointy hatted bastards that they were at the time. Um, you, you can't be racist to Germans, right? No. Okay, no, no, okay, no, okay, okay. Just making sure. Um, it, it, they were deciding for some reason. We want to have a navy that might be able to challenge England. Um, and so they started building up a navy. Now, the thing about it is, is if Britain has a giant navy, it, it very reasonably can say this is in self-defense. This is the only way we defend ourselves. This is our way of doing it. If Germany builds a navy, it is for one purpose, and it's to fuck England up. That is the only thing feasible reason Britain could have, or Germany could have, to build up a navy. So Britain went to, they they sent them an ultimate, oh, by the way, another thing here, uh, if you're wanting this, I am not going to get bogged down in the undersecretary's undersecretary of who sent who a letter about, it does not fucking matter for what we're doing. If you want that, this is not your podcast. Uh, There are others, go find them. Um, Go watch The Great War, it's a a YouTube series that covers all of this in insane detail. Um, but, but yeah, we're not getting there. We're doing a little bit more broad strokey than that, but they sent them an ultimatum and said, uh, uh, Hey, stop. Uh, you don't need, I, we need a Navy as, as, uh, as a, you know, main point of self-defense. You want it as a luxury. Stop doing that. Or we're going to see that as an act of aggression. And Bismarck went middle fingers up, and they kept building up their navy. Oh, it wasn't even Bismarck anymore. It was Wilhelm at this point. Oh, it was the Kaiser. Yeah, I forgot the Kaiser. Yeah, yeah. Kaiser. Sorry, Kaiser time. Yeah, it, it's the Kaiser, Kaiser. The Kaiser that completely bought into social Darwinism. Oh, were just yeah, better good, than good Kaiser. Um, now the other thing that was going on here uh, was because they were investing so heavily in that navy, they were very underspent in other areas of their military. So their navy is getting built up. Now England is still out producing them two to one. So now Germany has a really... Just a navy that's going to get its ass handed to it by Britain and a weak military as a result, uh, a weaker ground military as a result. So it is impossible. The reason that's important is because it is impossible at this time for Germany to fight and win a two-front war against France and Russia on the other side. They know that. 
they know for a fact we spent too much on our Navy. We, we're not going to win. We don't have enough manpower or, or machines to win two wars. So that necessitated their their little machinations, the Schlieffen plan, all that kind of fun stuff. We're going to go in and knock out France. Um, so that's your that's a lot of your militarism. And you also have a lot of that building up in, in Russia. Russia is, at this time, uh, again, fourth largest economy. They are a superpower to a certain extent. But they're getting their butts handed to them, and they're getting kind of embarrassed. Um, the uh, the Russo-Japanese War, they they thought, oh, we're going to come in and be the dominant force in China. Here we go. This will be real easy. And the Japanese handed them their ass. And that was embarrassing. Like, that was, like, global humiliation. Um, I don't want to say, because I know I would never want to denigrate the, the Vietnamese ever, but it, it's sort of an upset on the scale of the United States getting their asses handed to them by Vietnam. Like, that shouldn't happen. And it did. Um, and, and good on, I mean, there's no, there's no good guys in that war. You have Imperial Tsarist Russia fighting Imperialist Tsarist, you know, uh, Emperor Japan. It's not really a war of good guys, but, but the Japanese were not supposed to win that war. Beyond that, you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Hi, they get to make their appearance. Welcome back, guys. If you don't, remember the 1848 revolutions that were going on? Remember that whole series we did? Uh, Franz Joseph, the emperor of, of Austria at that time, still on the throne. He is our one through thread that gets us from that last branch to this one. Um, he is the rope we will swing on. Um, there, here's the thing to know about Franz Joseph. Uh, you remember how in 1848 we are talking about barricades and all sorts of weird, like, anachronistic stuff that like, seems like way long ago? He still thinks that way, and we're about to start World War fucking one. Uh, some, he is not the man for the job right now. Um, but he did, in his ever, you know, wise nature, decide, hey, you know who's looking kind of weak down there? The Ottomans. Hey, welcome to the next guys in the part. This welcome to the next people. Are you keeping track of all these guys? Because it's important. It's not. Don't ignore the Turks. They're fine. Whatever. But the, the Ottomans show up. Well, yeah. it, it is a big deal because it, the whole. I know, but I, I don't want to have to think about the Ottomans. I know. Um. So now you have the Ottoman Empire's starting to crumble. They are on the downswing. They were a dominant period for for. They had held the Balkans for five, for the last five hundred years. Mm-hmm. It, it, for someone now to conceptualize that. 200 years longer than America has existed, the Ottomans held the Balkans. Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, uh, Bulgaria, all of these were areas under Ottoman control. And they had been for all, as long as anyone could ever think back to. But the empire is starting to fall, and Austria saw weakness. And if there's one thing Austria-Hungary, look at it, it's already two empires just shoved together to make it a super empire, loves to do. It's mash more things together into this little hodgepodge of Voltron country they want to make. So they go, hey, we're going to annex Bosnia and Herzegovina. And then they just did it. They just took it. They just said ha, and they kicked the... T- I mean, the the they just d- d- took it, and no one really was going to do anything. That pissed a lot of people off, rightfully so, because Austria-Hungary doesn't have any real claim. There's no ethnic claim. There's no cultural claim. There's no reason for them to have Bosnia-Herzegovina. Now, the Russian Empire has a very legitimate claim to that, as the they have always... The Russian Empire was always very supportive of the Slavic states and the Baltic states. They were, they were their main supporter of... A, 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 this concept of some sort of pan-Slavic country down there. Um, they were their ally. They were really Serbia's only ally in that area. Um, and they were they were desperate to keep Serbia going because they were acting as a buffer for reasons we'll get to later. Um, but so Bosnia-Herzegovina get annexed by Austria. 
that pisses off Serbia, quite rightly, um, because they 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 see that as Serbia's uh, at the time. I think the the and it may still be, I don't know, the, the motto of that country, the saying that they went by was, where dwells a Serb, there lies Serbia. Um, kind of, which if you're Austria or you're anyone who's trying to annex them, that kind of should worry you a little bit because that's a group of people. And this is getting more out of the militarism part of Maine and more into the nationalism side. So we're kind of jumping around in the little analogy a little bit. But the Slavs were a, the, the Serbs were a very nationalistic people. They, they, they were very proud of their country. They wanted their own country. They had been ruled, they'd been colonized essentially by the Turks for 500 years. They wanted their own country. And then to see Austria just come in and unilaterally say, we're annexing Bosnia, uh, a place where a number of Serbs lived in there and, and people that they had much more culturally in, in, in common with than Austrians did. Um, they, they were they were rightfully pretty pissed about that. Yeah. And so you start seeing some tensions rising there. And that led to a couple different um, Balkan conflicts. Um, I'm not going to be getting into the nitty gritty of those conflicts. Again, this is not a military history podcast. That's not what we're trying to do here. Um, you can look them up if you want to. But this kind of brings around to the, the how these are starting to ally themselves. So... We, we have the annexation of Serbia, uh, of Bosnia by, by Austria-Hungary. That starts the, the, the clocks ticking because everybody then starts thinking something is going to happen. Russia knows that Serbia is its, its main ally in the Balkans, so it begins pre-mobilization knowing that it has to back up Serbia. It has a, blank, it has a, a, a unilateral alliance with Serbia saying if, if you get attacked, we're coming to help. Austria-Hungary has a similar relationship with Germany. Germany, Germany said to, to a man, blank check. If something happens in Serbia, we will back you up. We will help you with that conflict. We are here for you. And that forms the first part of the, the, the two man of the triple alliance. The third part of the triple alliance is Italy. Yeah. Uh, but the as is tradition, country. nobody gives a fuck about Italy because they're just off doing whatever it is Italy does. The only country that's fought on both sides of both world wars. It's, they're just fucking... It's so goddamn dumb. They're on cocaine the whole goddamn it's time. It's so goddamn dumb. They're down trying to do some nonsense in... They're trying to capture the Alps. They're trying to they're capture the Alps. They're doing drunk. some shit down in northern <laughs> Africa. Um, they're really... And nobody... It was, it's hilarious to listen to. At the time, even when they were part of the alliance, no one expected anything of Italy. Italy was just, like, tagging along for the ride. No one is like, all right, well, we've got the the German flank are going to go there, and the Austrians will go here, and the Italians will, I, I don't know, eat spaghetti. They're, fuck them. They got nothing. We got nothing. Is Garibaldi still down there at this point? I don't even know anymore. What's happening? Um, but that's, yeah. So that Italy's, yeah. So the Triple Alliance is Austria-Hungary, Germany, Italy. But it is mainly Germany and Austria-Hungary. That is, and if you look on a map of Europe, it's this big bar all through Middle Europe, all the way down, basically to the Balkans. And it would, the, the biggest reason Russia was worried, and rightfully so, was if that, if Austria-Hungary took Serbia, if Austria-Hungary decided, hey, we're taking the Balkans, that's ours now, we're going to kick the Turks out and make it ours, they, they would have control all the way down to the Dardanelles. And the Dardanelles are super fucking important for Russia. 75% of Russia's exports went through the Dardanelles. Their wheat, everything that kept them alive as this fourth largest economy, 
went through the dark. It was their access to the rest of mainland Europe or to, to anywhere. To get out of the continent, you had to go through there. And if that gets taken, if that's controlled by an, a hostile Austria-Hungary, no, game over. This is not going to end well for you. Um, so Russia has to keep Serbia intact, has to keep that buffer in the Balkans that is friendly to them and gives them access to that shipping lane. Um, and so no matter what, if, if Austria comes for, for, Ser- for Serbia, Russia is going to fight. Um, and Austria-Hungary knew that, and yet still just didn't prepare for any of it. Like, they are the most... Franz Joseph is the most bumbling, just b- obviously out-of-his-mind monarch at the time. He just has no idea what he is doing, and so that military is very unbuilt up. But it's also, it's kind of collapsing, because while you have a unified... What Bismarck did with unifying Germany, he brought Germany together under a German identity. They were one nation. They were one group of people. Um, Austria-Hungary isn't that. There were 15 different versions of the Austro-Hungarian National Anthem. They're, 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 they're a mismatch of different cultures that are all slammed together, not because of identity or, or cultural heritage, but because of imperialism, because we need a big, we need a big empire and empire building requires you to maintain these and it's falling apart. It's badly managed. Um, the only way they've been keeping the Balkans at bay as long as they have was by buying them off, sort of like a, a Roman kind of like you know, tribute systems. They, they were buying their loyalty into saying, please don't rebel, just kind of stay down there and do your thing. And that leads to this really uneasy tension going on in the area. You then have Britain and France who have always agreed, we're on the same team, we don't like Germany being as powerful as they are. If anything happens, we're going to come in, yada, yada. That's that's less... That's sort of de facto. Like, it's always just, it's there. It's going yeah, to happen. It's a big, it's a big recent turn. There used to be, like, Oh, at this time, yeah, I'm about to say, the, the, the but, concept that they By this time, yeah, that's established. Yeah, they are, they are as best of friends. They are United States and Israel level, just, mm-mm, buddied up. Yeah. Ready to go. So, you then have the, the Triple Entente, which is the next group of, of uh, you know, allies here, and that's Russia, France, and Britain. Because even though Russia and Britain and France really don't have a lot ideologically in common... Um, they both are are threatened by Austro-Hungarian expansion and the concept of German, you know, militarism getting getting a little too out of hand here. Um, so that's your alliance as part of this. What ended up happening is instead of this being able to become a localized conflict where it had been in the past, Balkan War, there had been a number of Balkan Wars where there's skirmishes between Austria-Hungary and, and the various Balkan states and, and between the Balkan states themselves, Balkan states against the, the Ottoman Empire, um, but they never broke out into a giant conglomerate war. The this and this is the part of it that everyone who's listening, you've you learned this in history class. This is the there were a lot of complex alliances that caused this to escalate faster than it needed to. But that's what ties all these people together. I have no idea what fucking ties Italy to any of this. Still, I spent like two <laughs> weeks trying to jam this all. I don't fucking know what Italy's doing over there. I don't. I I just don't. Um, and the Ottomans have silly hats. And other than that, that's all I've got there. Yeah. Um, but so that that leads us to the imperialism part. Yes. And the imperialism part is what takes us to uh, a, a two two varying crises in a little place called Morocco. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first the the imperial system is far. I mean, when you listen to them talk about it, it's and again, we're about to get into a whole book on imperialism, and and we. We know why it is as evil as it is, and colonialism is as bad as it is, but 
to listen to how the great powers, quote-unquote, talked about their imperial holdings is... It, it just makes your skin crawl. It's really, really bad. Um, and that there's got to be a better word for that, but it, it just is. It's, they looked at them as commodities that they could essentially trade to other great powers when they needed things. They, they extracted their resources, and then they traded them like trading cards. That's all they were to them. They were just ways to... They were, they were the, the, the yachts of the great powers. It was just a big dick measuring contest of who has the most imperial holdings elsewhere and how big is your empire. Um... And so the Moroccan crises were as, or, or the Tangier crises, depending on what you want to call them, uh, was a dispute in March. The first one was March 1905 and May to May 1906, and it was over the status of Morocco, which sounds kind of weird because what, what the status of Morocco? It's a country. It exists. No, 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 no. It's about who owns Morocco because why wouldn't it be? Um, the Germans really expected. They they were trying to weaken the uh, the 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 bond that held France and, mm-hmm. and England together. They wanted to 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 kind of gossip girl high school style insert some tension in there and try and get them to butt heads and be at odds um, by by going in and debating who owned France and who was allowed to have it. Um, the exact opposite happened. This heavily it blew up in their face massively and it heavily heavily solidified the alliance between England and France. Um, and so now again, we're developing these very clear. Uh, uh-uh, uh, we don't like you. We're not. We're not messing with you. Um, we're gonna skip the Bosnian crisis momentarily and get to the second Morocco crisis, which was 1911. Uh, in 1911, uh, the the kind of ongoing dick measuring contest of Imperial Europe put France, Germany, and Great Britain back competing for control of Morocco. It was a short-lived war scare in 1911, and in the end, France established a protectorate over Morocco. Because why don't you? Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, which created more tensions because now you have French troops being deployed into Morocco where they're not really wanted. Um, Germany sent a gunboat down there to a, to the port of Agadir. Agadir? We're going with Agadir. Uh, in July 1911. And this led everybody to be... Germany didn't trust England. England didn't trust Germany. A lot of stuff's getting getting really, really butting heads. Um, and this increased fear and hostility. It drew Britain and France closer, pushed Germany out, uh, and, and British kind of... The British backing of France during that time, again, as we said, it solidified that relationship and it made it very clear who would take whose side come 1914. Yeah, and it's... I mean, that's a really big deal, too, because not was the second time they solidified things, but they're doing it with a gunboat now. Yeah. And the whole thing that got Germany scaring uh, England was the, the they were threatening English naval hegemony. Yep. And, and again, that's what we talked about at the beginning is this concept. You don't, yeah. You, you don't fuck with England's boats. Yeah. I mean, and they're the boat boys. I, I, I'm not one that's going to be like, oh, you don't mess with hegemony. Let them have the hegemony. You know, I mean, obviously, we don't want U.S. military hegemony everywhere in the world. But when you do it, they're. There's going to be tension. There's going to be consequences. People aren't going to like their hegemony threatened. And England didn't like their hegemony threatened. You know, um, I also think it was, I think 1911 was the first time Germany sent, it was like the proto-battleships. Yes. Oh, don't get, okay, that's another fun, (laughs) it's another fun fucking diversion, but it's the dumbest thing ever. Germany, part of this German, so the German uh, naval buildup, the smart parts of the German naval buildup, build U-boats. Yeah. What is the one thing you think about when you think German Navy? Goddamn submarines. They made bad sub. They made great submarines. They wrecked people's shit in, in in the seas. That was their thing. 
Instead, they built a whole bunch of these weird, big-ass, armored battleships. They were big and slow. And and never got used. They were (laughs) worthless. They were the F-35 of German fucking warboats. They were the dumbest waste of money. It was the military-industrial complex at its finest of, but, but we could build it bigger, and that'd be cool, right? They were the dick measuring boats. They oh. were fucking. They were tank boats that that couldn't sail fast enough or shoot far enough to do any goddamn thing. They couldn't do anything. But they gave England the idea for. Um, oh, they have a really badass name like uh, dreadnought. Dreadnought. They gave England the idea on how to design dreadnoughts, which did have range and were fast as shit. Yeah. It was. It was bad. It was again. It was a, the the. The Kaiser was out of his mind to try. It was his, their biggest, you want to talk about Germany's biggest mistake, thinking that you were going to somehow, again, they were, they were thinking world power status. They were thinking we can, we'll beat everyone on the continent and then we'll take the boats and we'll be the boat boys too. And and just stop it. Well, and and there's two things you got to remember in German history. One, and this explains Nazis a little bit, is (laughs) social Darwinism. And blood quantum. And they believed very much in both of those things. And Kaiser Wilhelm believed in both of them. So first he believed Germany was industrializing faster than England, because England started industrializing first. They did, but Germany had passed. I mean, at the had time passed. of the war, Germany was the industrial mecca. Had passed them big time. Had just spent 50 years, maybe, no, 70 years, pretty well, beating France into the ground. He, he you know, Wilhelm genuinely believed Germans were just better. And they the were, other thing is, super, and we're talking about that... Culturally, too, and they don't get it. I don't think they get the credit for this. It was the cultural Berlin was the cultural center of Europe, it had mm-hmm. surpassed all of the big thinkers of the time the, the heavy, the influencers, the Marx, Engels, Lenin. All of these people studied in Berlin, they were in yeah. Germany. It was, it was, for lack of a better word, there was this concept, um, of a pan German Europe. Of this, I think Middle Europa was the book that got written about it. Um, but it was this, not like a militaristic Third Reichy, but like a, no, 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 we've, we've industrialized and we're going to spread this, this benevolent, industrialized, enlightenedness all throughout Europe to everybody and everyone will have it and we'll just live in this, it, it, again, it's pure utopian nonsense, neoliberal bullshit. Oh, sure. But, but, it, it, but it was, there was this genuine thought that that's what they were going it's to exactly do. It's exactly the spreading democracy, but on an industrial Dr- exactly, European level. Exactly, exactly, but with pointy hats. Yeah, with pointy hats. And then uh, the other thing other than social Darwinism is, of course, the blood quantum. Wilhelm was I think he was like half or third English, like his is some relative was was from. English. I did not do a uh, a twenty one and me twenty three and me on on Kaiser Wilhelm before this. Ka- Kaiser Wilhelm could do twenty three and me and scored big in England to say the least, <laughs> and so he thought that. England's navy was an innate genetic English trait. It wasn't an adaptation to the fact that they're on an island. So because he was English, he could build a good navy. Um, guys, so here's something that's going to happen. I have not heard this and have no way to refute this. Um, if that sentence is true, it is the dumbest goddamn thing that has ever been said in this it fucking closet. And it makes me concerned that this person was allowed to be a world power. <laughs> that is the dumbest goddamn thing I have ever heard in the history of time. We are done. None of that was relevant. You are dumb. We are dumber for having heard it. May God have mercy on your soul. Oh my Christ. God damn it. At least the Nazis were trying. What the fuck is that? 
God, now I'm mad. I was already upset, and now I'm just mad for no reason. And you thought Franz Joseph was the dumbass. I know. I thought I was pissed that I had to hear about Franz Ferdinand for two weeks straight. Fucking getting to God damn blood quantum. God damn it. All right, fine. Back to the Morocco crisis. Um, so the other other uh, you know side effect of the Moroccan crisis is while we rightfully think of England as uh, giant imperial assholes, mm-hmm. um, there was actually a uh, an internal kind of power struggle in England at the time in the cabinet between the there were as a radical isolationists. There were people that thought, fuck this imperialism, let's just, everyone come home, let's go hyper-isolationist. Kind of exactly what America was doing at the time, this, this concept of I, everyone keep inside and stay to ourselves, um, which, yeah, that worked. Um, and then the Liberal Party, who were imperialist interventionists, and they, they did it on the model of this benevolent, England and France had this way of couching their imperialism in benevolence. Um, exactly the same. We 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 t- it should be very familiar to people. Oh no, and it is. It's very very much the American model of we're doing this to to enlighten these people and bring them modern innovations and bring them into the modern world and yada yada yada. They couched in that. That is very starkly contrasted with German imperialism. German imperialism was far more, and this is not an oversimplification. It was far more honest, and it was far more just practical we want this because we need these resources to expand to be able to do what we want to do we're taking it period and and that let england and france have this feeling of moral superiority over germany it's part of what created that anglo anglo franco hatred of germany you look at the propaganda that came out the things that came out about germany they don't see them as human they, they, they literally saw that, I mean, they, they did the thing that you do with your enemy of, of, of making them into kind of like what Germany does with Jewish people. You know, it's a fun, everyone does it to everybody, but they definitely saw Germans as not, they're, they're doing it the wrong way. They're, they're colonizing these folks wrong. Look at us, the right way that we're doing it. So that, that definitely was another side effect that the, uh, the imperialist side of, of England won out. The interventionists got got joined. David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill. You know, you might you might remember him. Yeah. Um, that fat fascist fuck. Um, but that that led to the, the Mansion House speech and a whole bunch of other boring shit that no one really gives a shit about. So that takes us to the the actual kickoff of World War One. The thing that everyone talks about as being the cause. So obviously, we have talked now for roughly thirty five minutes. Um, and in those 35 minutes, I did not mention the name Franz Ferdinand one time, except that one time I just yelled about him two minutes ago because he pisses me off. Franz Ferdinand was the nephew of Franz Joseph. He was, by a series of weird coincidences, now next in line to be the head of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was, by all accounts, a moderate. Um, Franz Joseph was absolutely a, a wild uh, imperialist psychopath, um, full on the monarchy. Definitely no, no reform coming on, no nothing like that. And Franz Joseph was, eh. I mean, he was a milk toast moderate, but he also happened to be a giant, giant, giant racist um, who did not think the Slavic people were people, um, uh, which. Very unfortunately, and it is a it is a thing that will come up. I mean, it, it's kind of impossible to ignore. Is a really, 
really common thought in in all of Europe at this time. I don't give a shit how enlightened the people are. The way <laughs> Western European people talk about the Slavs is horrendous and that you you have to self you have to be willing to accept that and and own that if you're going to to hold any of these people up Engels said some horrendous shit about the Slavic people and you can come up with all there are a lot of reasons he did I mean again they were they he thought they were talk about kind of blood quantum he seemed to think for some reason that the Slavs as a people were anti-revolutionary and were reactionary as a people. And for the same reasons that that's fucking stupid for Kaiser Wilhelm to think that shipbuilding was in his genes, it's fucking stupid to reduce the Slavs to anti to, to counter-revolutionary because they're Slavs. That's not, that's not a, a good take by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so you can kind of also see... Why they were such a hyper-nationalist, hyper, you know, unified group of people. Because everyone was shitting on them constantly. They had to find a way. And they were tiny. There was like a, I think Serbia was like a country of four million people or something like that at the time this was all kicking off. Um, now, that being said, I, I, that, I have been standing pretty hard for the, the Serbs at this point. Um, they also were kind of assholes to a certain extent. Nobody's good in history, guys. Welcome to History 101. Everyone's assholes at something. Uh, the Serbs' particular asshole was that they, as oppressed as they were as a people by Western European nations or by the Turks, um, they oppressed some Muslims hard. Very hard. They they did some brutal repression of, of any of the Muslim minorities in, in the Balkan states, and that's not a good thing. Um, so again, World War One. nobody's the good guy at all. Um, and that leads us to what the fuck was Franz Ferdinand and why, why did the, why, why did he get killed? Franz Ferdinand did not like the Serbs, didn't think the Serbs deserved their own state, uh, had said that publicly, although privately it's come out that he probably, after Uncle Franz Joseph died, would have been the one person likely to give Serbia a, uh, it, it's the fun you know, irony of his assassination is that if he had lived and if he had taken over, very likely Serbia and the Balkan states, there would have been a pan-Slavic state. He would have conceded that because he recognized that it was in the interest of the empire to do so. Um, so him getting murdered because of his anti-Slavic nature was, was kind of ironic at a certain extent, but he was also a giant imperialist asshole, so we can get him fucked. Um, there, it, Serbia had a, a, a couple different uh, resistance organizations. Uh, the, one of them, most famously known, is the Black Hand. Um, solid name for a terrorist group, if you're going to be a terrorist group. Yeah, um, good. Absolutely still a terrorist group. Uh, not really. The problem with the Black Hand is something we talk about a lot on this podcast. Violence is not bad inherently. Uh, violent means to get what you want are not bad inherently. There has to be some sort of theory or some sort of plan to your violence. There has to be a roadmap for what that violence is intending to do, or you end up starting World War One. And guys, you don't want to start World War One. It's not good. Um, but so they had plans. I mean, there had been plans to assassinate. Uh, they, they, there, there had been assassinations that took Serbia in. I mean, the 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 original founding member of the Black Hand got wounded in the assassination of the Serbian 
king and queen at the time that he overthrew them. I mean, it's it's literally a very, it was a very hectic area. And this was something most of Western Europe just kind of looked at the Balkans and went, oh, another guy got, it's how we look at the Middle East. I mean, it's honest to God how the West treats the Middle East nowadays. Oh, some people killed each other there. Eh, well, they do that. Moving on. Like, didn't think, never thought twice about it. Just thought, well, that's that region. They do that to themselves occasionally. Well, there'll be a war or two. They'll, they'll fight each other. Whatever. Um, but in this case, the, the, the what's-his-fuck Franz Ferdinand decided, I'm going to take a merry trip down to Sarajevo to see the people. Um, because why? I mean, I mean, George, it's like George W. Bush taking an open convertible tour of Baghdad or something like that. Like, what are you doing? You, you fucking idiot. But so they drop, they go down. Did he happen to have mission accomplished? Oh, he might as well have. Yes, actually. No, funny (laughs) enough. Yes, he did. Uh, That day, um, the, the night before him and his, uh, Sophia, I think was his wife. Yeah. Arch Duchess Sophia. Um, they, they were commenting to someone that they, one of their uh, people that they were, cause everyone told them, don't go. Everyone said, what the fuck are you? Don't go to Sarajevo. You're going to, that's not a good idea. And they're like, push, push. The people will love us. Um, and she said, oh, all the Slavic people have embraced us and, and they've all welcomed us with open arms and they've fallen behind us and they're so welcoming to us and our, our and, and want to be part of the empire and they're so, so lovely and no one is, you know, this this talk of talk of violence is, is so, you know, overblown, yada, yada. That was like written the day before all of this went down. Uh, there's there's also, we can go through all sorts of fun tales of the, the Benny Hill style antics that led to this whole thing happening. Um, needless to say, people were backing up. No one knew where they were going. Uh, Enrico Princip threw a bomb and, uh, er, and, and shot the Archduke, like, point blank, like he just showed up, shot him. Um, and now we've got problems. So, Serbian, uh, terrorist, I don't want to call him an anarchist. I know they probably are, but, yeah. It feels really, I, I, and hey, if there is one person in this closet that has dunked on anarchists hard, it's this guy. Anarchists have some sort of ideology other than a- anarchists are our comrades. Let's, yes, let's just be very clear. There are there are people that'll take the theory of anarchism and they'll run with a very very terrible direction. And in the times where anarchism is taken and it's accomplished something, it's it's not been defensive enough to hold up. Mm-hmm. But the goals of anarchists is are the same as us yeah. and. You know, it's well, not well. Hold on. Well, for and capstone, and capstone, and no, and capstone. <laughs> but most anarchists, you know, I mean, and it's real anarchists. And there's different people with different reasons. You know, the, the indigenous community in America is going to have a large, large subset of anarchists because yeah. they're going to want to return to a society that's decolonized, much like they're familiar more, yeah, with. Yeah, well, more similar to what that came. From. That yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, I mean, anarchists are our are, are comrades. We should be fighting along them and supporting them. Hundred uh, so yeah, I mean, I agree with not necessarily calling the black hand anarchist, but there could there could certainly be, just like there's opportunists that that claim to be socialists, and just like we certainly see opportunists that claim to be anarchists in today's world. Again, the ones you know supporting like Rahava or yeah. you know the ones out there uh, running around saying, oh well, well you know you have to think both sides are bad when you talk about the DPRK or Venezuela or whatever. You know that's. That's bullshit, and those are opportunists just dressed up as anarchists. And so the black hand 
could certainly fit into that category. Absolutely, and the, but they they definitely they were they were terrorists, and in that, mm-hmm. I don't use that word like. Again, it no, is... No, because, I mean, it could be a hammer word. Anyone can say anyone's a terrorist. But there's a, a thought in your head of what a terrorist is. And as much as that word was created to be misused, there's a there's a not misused definition in our head. And Black Hand was absolutely in exactly. that definition. And so, interesting in the history of terror... So, a terrorist commits an act that kills a person. And the, the, the country that was wronged by that attack then blames the entire country that that terrorist came from and decides to go fuck them up. That might that, that is the story of World War One. It could also be the story of America in yeah. 2001. I mean, it is... The reactions are identical. This was not... The Austrian government immediately, immediately assumed that this was the Serbian... This was an active Serbian government plot and not an isolated asshole without a plan. Now again, uh, killing Franz Ferdinand in the grand scale of history, was he an asshole? Probably, but yeah, again. I mean, we're not against killing Franz Ferdinand. We're against killing him without an active plan and what that can lead to. And what that was going to be. And again, yeah. if this was, if the active plan was we want our own state and we want to keep it, if you think that's forwarding it, okay, but it wasn't. You had to recognize that the reaction to that Without a plan, without the actual Serbian government involved in a military action ready to go, that Austria-Hungary was huge. They were backwards as fuck, but they were huge. Yeah, which is a a reminder of Praxis needs theory. Exactly, exactly. So again, Enrico Princip, great Praxis, bad theory. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Our new new segment on Mark's Madness. Uh, So yeah, so the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or... Yeah, Austro-Hungarian Empire immediately, immediately lost their minds, um, assumed that this was executed by the Serbian government, and this is, with everything that led up to this, this is not, Franz Ferdinand gets killed in isolation and we start World War One. but everything else we talked about up till now, all of those tensions, all of those alliances, everything kicks into gear. Everything goes, because Austro-Hungary is mobilizing they're they're sending ultimatums down to Serbia. They're sending they're they're threatening. They're going to go fuck Serbia up. They're they're going to go get their revenge. Um, and so the second that starts looking like it's going to happen, Russia, and there are some there are a lot of people that right kind of rightfully say Russia may be the 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 actual catalyst that kicked this into a world war, because this very likely would have without Russian mobilization would have ended up being Austro-Hungary walks in and stomps Serbia. And it would have remained another Balkan conflict and a long line of Balkan conflicts. But Russia saw what was happening, had an alliance with Serbia, a strong alliance with Serbia, and began pre-mobilization and then actually mobilized their army. And that kicked every other alliance into gear. When that alliance kicked in, it was on the... uh, There was no way that was going to be a war. There was no way Russia was going to be able to fight a war just to help Serbia. So immediately it was going to be a Russian war with Austria-Hungary to stop them invading Serbia. Well, Austria-Hungary has a, a hard and fast alliance with Germany that Germany has to back them up. And, and Germany ha- doesn't like Russia anyway. 
Interestingly, yes, they have tensions, but that's another, and we're going to get to that in just a second. But yeah, they're, they do not like, they're, they're going to, there are tensions there and they're going to overboil, which kicks the England and, and England and France both had alliances with, with mm-hmm. Russia because their goal was, was containment of Germany. They wanted to have, and that's the other, that's the thing, this, this can go on for hours and hours and hours because there's so many things at play here, but the reason Germany teams up with Austria-Hungary and starts that military mobilization is because they rightfully felt surrounded. They were. Every, the three major powers surrounding them all said, you're not going anywhere and we have guns pointed at you ready to stop you. So they rightfully wanted some sort of breathing room uh, and they didn't know how they were going to get there. Um, Russia uh, wanted their access to the Dardanelles. That's really all it came down to for Russia at the end of the day. Russia didn't need to expand. They weren't an imperial. They didn't. They had the 12th or like the largest landmass on the face of the planet. They don't need to expand. Um, they need to keep the Ukraine. They need to keep that bread box uh, where they where they can produce all that wheat. But they don't, they're, they're not imperialists at this point. Um, Austro-Hungary is the definition of imperialist. They just want to keep adding extra hyphens to the back of their name. The Austro-Hungarian, Turkish, unified Australian empire or whatever they wanted to end up being at the end of the day. Um, and, and then all of this kind of comes to a head. Now, Russia and Germany did not want to fight. And, and it's very interesting. So the Kaiser, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Tsar Nicholas II. I have said on this podcast before, and I stand by it, Nicholas II is possibly the most incompetent monarch of all time. Should not have been a monarch. Didn't need to be a monarch. Only stayed a monarch because he thought there was a divide that God had picked him and the Tsarina to be kings, and so they had to bear that burden, even though he was miserable at it. Um, he was cousins with Kaiser Wilhelm. Him and Kaiser Wilhelm were cousins, and so there are letters back and forth between the two of them with Nicholas going, "My dear cousin." Please stop the Hungarian. Like, please talk some sense into Franz Joseph. Do not start a war with Serbia because we have to defend Serbia. If this happens, this is going to cause a war. We None of us want that. Please don't do that. Even though they all kind of wanted it. Um, and it's signed. It's very funny because they're signed. It's signed Nikki. So that, and then the, the Kaiser sends his back and is like, I know, get it, totally don't want to have any big giant, you know, cross war. Would rather not have to try and kill you um, in the middle of winter. Uh, wouldn't like to do that. Promise I'm gonna do everything I can. Willie, so it's it's just the goofiest fucking na- like people signing letters to each other that they could have avoided this all. But gen- at the end of the day, all of these powers at the time thought this was going to be quick. Everyone thought this war would be done in three weeks or a month. Or, or they'd be done by Christmas. It was the, that it would be glorious and we'd all come. No one had fought a major war in 40 years, which means most people of military fighting age had no recollection of a war. And the last wars were like the Napoleonic Wars. They were yeah. completely different than what was about the to happen. The last time there was a war, we had the Paris Commune. Exactly. There's not this, this concept of the hell that they were about to all unleash upon each other with tanks and mustard gas and trench lines and everything else that was about to happen. None of them had any idea. They all wanted it. They thought it would be a, gl- a fun way to come back and get... Most of the generals um, that were leading any of these armies, none of them had ever been in active combat. None of them. It was all a bunch of theory nerds th- who played Risk a lot deciding to go run a war. And it acted like that. Um, 
And that's when you get again. You got the the Schlieffen, and that's when everything kicks off. The Schlieffen plan. Germany decides that they recognize that Austria-Hungary is going to go to war with Serbia, which means they're going to have to. They know how those alliances will kick in. They so they know. Okay, we got to go. We have to knock out France because we cannot. Again, as we talked about earlier, cannot fight a two-front war. So why the only way to get to France without going through the heavily bordered? Uh, the border is very heavily defended. So their whole thought was, we're going to run through Belgium. Belgium was completely neutral at the time. England uniformly supported Belgium. They, the Germans gave them an ultimatum saying, let us come through. Belgium said, fuck off. And then everyone kicked off. And that starts World War I. And then that leads us to everything else that came in after that and all of the fun repercussions. But that is the, the, the primer, the best condensed but hitting the high point stuff I can give for World War I. Um, that being said, since this is my first time through imperialism, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. obviously I'm through chapter one, you know, and two for what we're doing here and the rest of it, but yeah, so let's take it from here. Let's, let's take it from here. What, what, yeah. what, what does this, what does all of this have to do with what Lenin's doing right yeah, now? Yeah. So, I mean, you've got to remember too, that these socialists and a lot of them, because this is where Marx, uh, this is the heavy industrialized country. This is where Marx and Engels have tried the revolution. A lot of them have been looking like Germany. This is where socialism is going to happen. You know, and and there was some some pushback uh, from armies and things that that kind of led people to believe that at times too. A lot of that came bigger after World War One, but you know some of that had even happened beforehand. And so Lenin was buddies with these people like Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Kautsky, all this in Germany, and and these were fellow revolutionaries, and they were working together. They were trying to get socialism going across Europe. Okay. There was also a there was a big guy I, I got I would have to look up his name again. One of the other when we were looking at the catalyst, there was a, a French socialist labor organizer, like the head of all the labor unions in mm. in France. And I, I will I will find his I will find his name and put a link to it in the episode description to go because he's a whole separate issue. But when they were talking about kickoff things that mobilized the people against war, the the late he was the socialists were actively agitating against war at least in France. Like they were like they recognized what was going to happen that a bunch mm-hmm. of working class poor were about to be sent off to die for some rich people. Well, and why it. wouldn't they know in France? This is where the land exactly. of the Paris Commune. Exactly. And so there was a, a big, their 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 big labor union uh, head was, who, who agitated heavily against the war, also got assassinated um, by members of the military and that it was a triggering event. I mean, that's solid. I mean, that was when everything started going to hell and everyone realized we were going to go to war. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Lenin's going through this, and so he's got international solidarity. He's trying to build up socialism, all these different countries, all these other socialist leaders, and this war starts kicking off. And obviously, it's very complex. Uh, a lot of these superpowers are going head to head. Lenin sees that. He certainly sees that from the Russian side. Yep. Um, and they had just gone through the industrialization in the 1905 revolution. Is Lenin in Russia right now? I don't think he's not. No, he's in. He's Germany. He's in, right? Is he in Germany or Switzerland? He, he went back and forth to Switzerland a lot. Okay. I know um, he was in. I, think I know he got happened. funneled from Switzerland in. Yeah. Yeah, but I think he actually is in Germany at this okay. point. Okay. Okay. Um, that said, I don't have a Lenin tracker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I want that now. Yeah. Oh, so. I want Lenin GPS throughout history. <laughs> Where in the world is Lenin? <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, but this war's kicking off, and all of a sudden, Lenin starts seeing these things happen where these people that were comrades, and he's seeing this war go off where the people are fighting for these leaders over Serbia and Morocco and, and all this shit. And he's going, 
how did capitalism get here? And why in God's name are people like Karl Kautsky all of a sudden saying we have to support the German cause? Who the fuck? I've been in here in German fighting side by side with you for socialism. What do you mean support the German cause against my Russian people, my brothers and sisters back here? What the hell? What, what German cause is there that yeah, isn't the workers' what, cause? What cause makes you want to kill my comrades that I've been doing revolution with? Excuse me, Karl. Fuck off. <laughs> You know? The subtitle of State and Revolution. Excuse yeah. me, Carl. Go, go fuck off. Oh, and, and, and we will visit a little... We will dabble a, a bit into Carl Kautsky into this. Not nearly oh, State and Revolution, goody, but yeah. Goody. yeah. Uh, don't, don't Kautsky Gadowski. Someone, someone in Discord had that handle on the other day in Pearl's Discord. It was the best, yeah. best handle I'd ever so, seen. So Lennon's going, how did capitalism get here? How did this war happen? And why are all these supposed you know, socialists and revolutionaries, uh, whether it's explicit or implicit in their stances, the stances are objectively supporting the war, period. You know, I mean, like we notice, right? We could say people say explicitly they want to overthrow Venezuela or they can say, I don't. I don't agree with, with going into Venezuela, but Maduro is also bad. Well, that implicitly is saying you want to go into Venezuela. You can lie about it all you want. You want to go into Venezuela, right? People are doing that with the world war. And Lenin's going, mm, what the fuck happened? And so he's trying to figure out the direction this happens. And we will also notice in this book, he does not say that economics are the only form of imperialism. I mean, how capitalism itself was built on colonialism, and you look at all the colonial wars and aspects of the war he's at right now, okay? Yeah. So you can look historically, politically, uh, geographically at how imperialism works. He's looking at the economics because he's trying to see what's not obvious, what people don't see, yeah. you know? Because, because if you notice, nowhere in my discussion that I just had about things that caused World War One. Did I mention economics one time? Yeah, other than other than the uh, trade route. Uh, other than yes, other than Russia needing access to the Dardanelles in order yeah. to export their export their goods. Yes. Yeah. Um, but Lenin's understanding that like this all came from capitalism, and just as you see from Marx, you have a base and a superstructure. That base is economic. So there's not just the politics. You know, governments are a state is the. A form of class oppression, right? Hmm. An apparatus of class oppression. It's not just the history. History matters, but what does history matter if you don't have the material conditions that cause that history? It's just a series of events. It's not just politically, um, or no, I'm sorry, we just talked about political. It's not just the state. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not just geographically, right? I mean, you're not talking whether it's things are next to each other or far apart. You're talking who wants to control something else. So there's an economic basis. So Lenin's trying to look at that. And uh, so he does have a preface uh, in this book. I didn't see in this copy, but I know there's, yeah, a, I didn't either. Uh, I know there's a big quote from it because I've heard this before. And so I made sure to take a note of this. And it's, it's the thesis of the book. And it's private property based on labor of the small proprietor, free competition, democracy, all the catchwords with which the capitalists and their press deceive the workers and the peasants are things of the distant past. Capitalism has grown into a world system of colonial oppression and of the financial strangulation of the overwhelming majority of the population of the world by a handful of advanced countries. And now these advanced countries are so busy stepping yeah. on each other's toes yeah. that they're fighting to the death. And yeah. so we're going to talk about how, again, and I will say that thesis statement again, private property based on the labor of the small proprietor, free competition, democracy, all the catchwords with which the capitalists and their press deceive the workers and the peasants are things of the distant past. Capitalism has grown into the world system of colonial oppression and of the financial strangulation of overwhelming the majority of the population of the world by a handful of advanced countries. 
very, very present, and it would be a great time to just slam the end on this chapter. But we can't because there were there was one more really funny thing that I oh. learned when we were doing this, <laughs> okay. and I had to say it because it was fucking hilarious to me. So when we're talking about Austria Hungary, and we may chop and screw this back in, I'm gonna I may put this at the beginning just so it doesn't end because that was a great ending, David. Just let it be said; that was fantastic. Uh, I mentioned that Austria Hungary, and this my my train of thought here was Lenin. There is a very big conspiracy theory that Lenin returning to Russia was a, a master plot by the Germans to sow civil unrest within Russia and get them out of the war. That is a very... Because the Germany did uh, get him passage. Like, they let, yeah. they had to let him through. They did have to let him through. That was really the catalyst that ended the war. It was, oh, absolutely. It was absolutely... I mean, I mean Lenin... Yeah, the revolution... It's not, like, it's not like the Russian Revolution happened like the Treaty of Versailles was signed this, the next day. No. But everybody who who's worth their salt is a historian knows that that's the yeah, catalyst. Russia, yeah, the revolution stopped. Yeah, that 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 put yeah. the brakes on and it was done. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, you could also see it because one of the things that that Lenin and this this was the first major sieve with anarchists and and communists post Russian Revolution. Lenin had to, to sign a peace deal. Yeah, or Russia would have had this revolution <sighs> and then immediately die. Yeah, and so he had to give up a lot of territory yeah. to Germany. And that was heavily anarchist yeah. territory. Brest, Brest-Litovsk was not was definitely a. Mm-hmm. The, you want examples of of you can't just play I- ideological bubbles like you, you, the real world exists and you have to work in it. That was that. And, and Lenin spoke Lenin, to it. Lenin. Lenin knew, did not want to do that. No, he, but he felt he had no choice. And and historically and, speaking, he likely didn't. Right. And I mean, even if he did, even if he can come back here in twenty twenty hindsight, armchair quarterback, he shouldn't have done that. Fine. Have that moral qualm. That doesn't mean Lenin did that on purpose. He was trying to survive. Yeah, and, and that's that's a big one to, to keep him. But it is. It is, a, it is a heavy criticism that gets leveled at Lenin. Mm-hmm. Um, but that made me thinking about trains, and, and a big part of World War One from the nerdy standpoint of it was that it was the whoever had the best trains essentially was going to win World War One because we don't have planes or anything like that. Whoever could get their troops from one point to another, this is a massive scope. Whoever got their people from one place to another would, would win. Which brings me back to Austria-Hungary being a goddamn shit show. So, Austria-Hungary's train system was not consolidated as they acquired people. Which means all lot of their trains ran on completely different gauges. Because the Austrian train system, and then the Hungarians, and then the slot, all the different ones, all built them slightly differently in uniform... So they literally were all on different gauges, so you couldn't run one train straight through. You'd have to end at the, the tracks ended, get all your stuff off the other train, move to the new train, and then get going Jesus again. Jesus Christ. So, again, just a fucking clusterfuck. But so, in- I do hope people know history enough to know that if anybody got their asses handed to them, and you don't think Germany, even though they, they lost this war... The people that really got their asses handed to them in World War One was Austria. Uh, there's a reason Austria-Hungary doesn't exist after World War yeah. One. Uh, the Ottomans also stopped existing after World War. A couple yes. big empires stopped existing post World War One. Um, but so the fun, so the the, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, in order to uh, make sure their trains were in sync, were synchronized. Were not uh, you? You didn't have people running into one another. They came up with this system to make sure everyone moved in tandem, and so every train just moved at the at the rate of that the slowest train could move, so that everything got there in, in sync, and you didn't have trains running over each other. And so every Austro-Hungarian train trying to 
ferry troops to the front was going at the speed of their slowest train, which was 10 miles per hour. Oh, God. Austria-Hungary was trying to move troops between the German border to the Russian border down to Serbia at 10 miles an hour. At the speed of a bicycle. They were bicy- They were tour de Francing their way to the front. It what? I don't understand how that pudding-brained asshole was allowed to run a country for as long as he was. <laughs> God damn it, Franz Joseph. And, and not nearly as inspiring as David said, but that is going to take us to the end of the introduction to imperialism, guys. Yeah. Uh, so coming at you next week will be uh, the actual work. It'll be chapter one of imperialism, the uh, highest stage of capitalism. <laughs>